And then as I started getting around the riverbank, the first shots went off and it hit me in the back. I didn't know at the time, but that punctured my lung, punctured my heart. Then the shot to the face, yeah, that just damaged the nerve and I just had like shots stuck in my skull. So it was while you were sitting there after you had traded water on the bank that you got the third That's shot? That's the third shot, yeah. That is freaky, eh? At that point, I just figured that this is it. And I didn't know where these shooters were, but I thought they'd done enough damage and I then just gave up. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. My name is Joshua Rubin, and I'm your host. Today, my guest is Davey Duplessis. He's an environmentalist, activist, inspirational speaker, author, and global explorer. Welcome to the studio. Yeah, thanks, Josh. So, I mean, I, I heard about your story, and um, the first thing I saw, and I think it's the first thing many people see, was the incident that happened in the Amazon. Yeah. So, I want to talk about that story because it's... I mean, it's inspiring and it's heartbreaking and it's kind of everything in between. Um, but first, I want to know, so you did a, a solo source to sea navigation of the Amazon River. Why did you choose the Amazon and what, what makes the Amazon such a special place? So, the, well, the inspiration for the Amazon was definitely, it's like iconic nature appeal. Like if you think... Every Nat Geo spectacle always puts the Amazon as one of like the best places to go for nature. And because um, uh, I was like inspired to go and see this spectacle of, or at least what I thought it would be, um, I selected the Amazon. So like the Amazon became like the, the starting point, okay? I want to go to the Amazon. I want to see the nature there. I want to see what the jungle's like. And then it became, okay, what type of adventure could you structure in the Amazon? Because it's huge. The Amazon takes up like a third of the South American continent. So then I thought, well, okay, you can't just go there on a holiday and expect uh, to have anything interesting coming out of that. So I thought, well, what about the river? What about if I try paddle or navigate the entire river? That would be interesting. It could be like a world's first adventure. So that was kind of what inspired me to go there. So had no one ever done that before? There's one guy who had done it before solo, uh, a guy called Mike Horn. Uh, but he'd, everyone like had, has taken their own approach to it. There's been groups of like professional kayakers who've done it. Um, but in terms of just a solo, no support, there was a guy, Mike Horn. Um, he's also a South African adventurer, he right? He is, yeah. I think he's Swiss now. But he's, 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 a, he's like world-renowned. And how far was the journey? Like how long would it take you and what distance would you have to cover? So it's, it's about six and a half thousand kilometers. Um, but that was when I was planning on doing it. Since then, the source of the Amazon has changed. And I think it's now technically grown by like another thousand kilometers. But at the point that I was going to do it at the... The known source at that time was about 6,500 kilometers, but it's not of river. It's like where the actual uh, first traceable drop of the Amazon starts. So it started on a mountain. It didn't start on like the stream. It started on a mountain where there is a cross that says this is the source of the Amazon and all the meltwater from these glaciers eventually start to form the Amazon. But for me, if you're going to go source to sea, uh, you need to start... Uh, the absolute source of the river. How far into the expedition did the accident take place or the, the incidents? Uh, so I'd, 
so I, it was 6,500 Ks. I thought it would take about four to six months. Um, and then I'd been uh, uh, on the expedition for about a month and a half, I think. And then I was just over 2,000 kilometers through the journey. So it was about a third of the way um, uh, into the expedition. And just before we get into the actual incident, how do you take enough food and supplies to go on such a journey? Because I'm assuming you can't just stop in the middle of the Amazon and go to a grocery store. No, you can't. So <laughs> it, it varies by approach. So some guys I think are a, lot, a bit more calculated than I was. I was kind of like, go there, figure it out. So when you, I mean, this was in 2012. So, um, you know, the most I was being able to understand of the route was looking at like Google Earth because there was no one who had done it that I could speak to. And the guys who had done it had done it with either teams. Um, so then when I was planning, I was just like, okay, you're kind of stepping into the unknown. Part of the unknown is you don't know what what's going to happen. So I would just take it like day by day. And then uh, when I would find somewhere to eat um, or like stock up with rice or beans, I would then just load it in the, the kayak or in the pannier bags when I was cycling. But a lot of it is just figuring it out. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I always thought that was like for me to my advantage because if you know, if I knew what I was stepping into. Probably wouldn't have done it. Would never have done it. Uh, it was the same with Africa Psych. I would never have done that. Actually, pretty much most of the big things in my life, I would never have done if I knew what it is that I was getting into. And mm -hmm. I still to this day take that like naive, maybe gung-ho approach where I'm just like get there, start, figure it out as you go. Um, uh, and you'll see when we, when, we, when we start talking about the incident, a lot of it um, kind of centers around that is you don't know the outcome. Yeah, I think a lot of people get caught up in the planning of things and then it seems almost insurmountable and they just never do it. But um, I think when you throw yourself head into something, a lot of the time you're able to figure out as you go along. So I think that's, I, I think what's important is doing preparation, like you say, but not so much that it kind of cripples you and scares you off the idea. Yeah. So you were doing a solo source to see and during that time you got shot while paddling. Right? Can you tell me what happened from just before the incident took place till how you got to safety? So, yeah, I'd, I'd been in the jungle for about two months and I was like in my routine. In the first few weeks, uh, you, you get that homesick and I also started to doubt where I could actually do this. Because it was long slogs, I was hungry all the time, um, and I had doubts that I'd actually be able to complete the adventure. But then I'd say, like maybe two weeks before I was shot, I, I started to feel like, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm probably going to do it in good time. I was thinking I could finish this now in four months. I was doing like sixty to seventy k's, um, paddling a day. My body had adapted. I'd adapted to the hunger and eating a meal a day. So I, I was starting to feel very confident, very optimistic. And um, when I'd, that night before, I was, there were two of the most like violent storms I'd ever been in came through 
the way I'd set up camp on the river. So I didn't sleep at all. But I woke up and I felt like um, optimistic. I felt like, you know, it's just another day, stick at the 60s or 70K, um, and I'd paddle throughout the day. So left in the morning, and then um, I remember it must have been probably around lunchtime. There was a small village that was like on a branch. And when I say small, it's probably like 10 people. And I stopped by there and they were on like this little branch of land jutting out. And I stopped there, pulled up my kayak and I asked them for food and water. And I'd always do this. I'd always, whenever I saw like a community, I'd interact in, in some degree if I felt it was safe. And normally I'd look at if they had like Westerners clothes and if it was like women and children, I'd feel like, okay, I could approach them. And most of the time they're friendly, um, obviously interested in who I was and what I was doing. They just like touch me and touch the kayak. So I, I stopped there. They didn't have anything. And what I suspect is that there were two guys. It was either two guys from there or there was like a pastor, a boat, but again, a small boat of like, there must be like four guys in it that either they went and said, we had, I'd seen some gringo who's paddling. I don't know how these guys knew where I was because the jungle was so wide. Like when you're talking about at, at parts, it's a kilometer wide. It's just very difficult to pick out someone. You know, it's like trying, if you think if you go to the ocean and you take a kilometer this way and a kilometer, you just take a it's square a kilometer. Space. It's a big space to pick out people. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I've always thought that these guys either I, I kind of gave away myself when I went up to this community or these other guys who had seen me. And what I did do is I tried to paddle towards them to speak to them. And I didn't like moor up with them, but I just like waved and they waved back. So I, I kind of gave away my position and I think um, these two guys came from either that small community or... The guys on the boat spoke to them. Um, so carried on paddling. Uh, this was like maybe an hour after I'd stopped at that village. Um, and then as I was going, these two guys came past on the boat. They called it a peke peke. It's like a, imagine like a... It's like a wooden canoe. Yeah, it's like a wooden canoe and they use these old outboard engines. Um, uh, these guys came past and like you you don't see people. I mean, I would see collectively maybe two people a day. Most days you, I would see no one. Um, these two guys came past and I never ever felt threatened um, like anything bad would happen. Initially I felt threats because it was foreign. Like the, the guys would be inquisitive. You know, I remember the one night I went camping. I woke up and there were two people like just sitting behind my, like, I, so I started packing up my tent and I didn't even realize these two guys were sitting like just on the fringes of the jungle where it meets the riverbank. They're just watching me. And I was like packing and I was like, I saw this like, Jesus, you know, what, uh, and they're like. No, it freaked me yeah, out. It, it, it freaked me out. Yeah. I quickly, like, I remember going for my, I had a machete, but then they weren't hostile. And then mm. I thought, you know, me coming, showing a machete and then they, I just carried on 
packing my stuff and they just watched me mm. like like they were watching. They're just interested, yeah. Yeah, just interested. So you were paddling down the river. Yeah. So this boat passed you. Boat passed. Didn't think of much of it. And then the the river snakes around these big bends. And what happens is as it goes around, you can't see ahead of you. So you're only ever seeing portions of the river. So these guys went um, went around. I carried on paddling. I eventually thought they were, you know, again, I actually didn't think anything of it. And then as I started getting around the riverbank, the, the first shots went off and it hit me in the back and um, it put me into a paralysis where it, I like froze and I fell off the kayak as well. And as I fell off the kayak, I just started sinking because I couldn't swim because I had no movement from the waist up. But I didn't know I'd got shot. I mean, that's the key thing to remember. I never knew I was shot until the third shot. So that first thing that hit me, I thought was an animal. I thought maybe a bird had flown into my back or like a... I don't know. Like so you a, didn't hear the gun going no, off? No, no, you didn't, don't hear that. Um, if, if you think, I mean, the bullets travel faster than the speed of sound. So by the time I was hit, and again, also that impact puts you into shock. You're into shell shock. Mm. So my ears were ringing, even underwater, it's ringing. But I was never, I never thought I was shot. I thought I was attacked by an animal. And I, when I remember when I was sinking, it went so quick from like literally kayaking the motion and then underwater, just like, what the hell is going on? I, I, it, it felt like, like I glitched in my life and I couldn't piece together. And then the only concern was I thought I, I was going to drown because I was sinking and I couldn't swim. And I didn't even know I was paralyzed. And how far down did you go, do you think, in the water? Well, so you feel the, the temperature change and you, I, my eyes were open. Uh, and I knew I was, was going just getting deeper. Darker it's just, darker. just black and cold. The top is warm and it's like murky. Um, so I knew I was, but you're falling with the current. You, the current flows like two, three knots. So you're going like this down. But then, I mean, I was moving around trying to like swim and figure mm. out what to do. Uh, eventually, I, I managed to kick kick to the surface and, and, and uh, I mean I, when I at school I played water polo so I learned how to tread water and if I if I didn't know how to tread water I would have drowned without a doubt because you I couldn't use my my like the top part of my body um so I, I I treaded water I got to the surface took a breath I was separated from the kayak because obviously you're falling with, with I was sinking with the moving current and then I was trying to figure out what the hell is going on and then I thought, okay, we'll just get to the kayak. And the kayak was capsized. It was maybe like two or three meters from me. And I started like treading water to get to the kayak. And just before I got to the kayak, I was hit again on the left side of the face. Is, so where exactly were you hit? All three shots. So you hit in the back? Back. This side of the face, this side of the face. And, and then I the see leg. there's like a little chip on your ear. Is no, that no, no, that's not it. Just no, born no. of that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the only... So, uh, so like a, a funny story, I, I went um, went to the dentist about a month ago and then I was getting a wisdom tooth taken out. So they they did a like x-ray and then I'm just sitting there waiting and then I see the dentist calls in another dentist. He calls in another dentist. Like for 10 minutes, 
I'm like, what is going on here? And then the, um, the dentist comes to me. He's like, did you have a car accident or something? And I was like, no. He's like, something not right with your, the x-ray. Because they do an x-ray of your whole face. And I uh, thought, oh, okay, is there a problem? He's like, can I just show you? And then he showed me and there's, I've still got bullets in my jaw here. And I've, I've forgotten about them. You, If I'm not mistaken, you were shot by a shotgun. With a shotgun, yeah. So... How far away were the people, do you think, that shot you? So I'd say the first was probably maybe like 20, 30 meters. But okay. because I was moving away, so also what happened is the, first, further and further. the first shot that to my back, we, there, there was like we, we counted in the x-ray about 18 shrapnel in a, or buckshot in a relatively concentrated area. Mm. So that's what happens is it sprays. Because gunshots, yeah, they do spread, like bursts open. And they also, so that it's not like, it, you know, like if you go to like an ammo shop, it's not like a stock stand. What they do is they keep the cartridge and they just stuff any metal in there. So there are some buckshot, but then there's also like cut off bolts, just pack it and they use it as a, uh, as a shot. So we counted 22 overall, but most of them in my back. So I knew that the back was the worst shot and that's where they were the closest because eventually the ones at the face, I remember when uh, they shot the third time, I saw everything hit the water and that's when I figured out that someone was trying to mm. shoot me. Because bullets don't travel through water very well. No, and you, you, you it's like it's you just see... It's like, like pepper falling. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, you were, you were treading water? So treading water get to the kayak, still don't know, thinking I'm being attacked by an animal, so then just get to the riverbank. It wasn't too far, so I started uh, treading water with the kayak, got to the riverbank, and then I like, just collapsed. I, I couldn't move, I couldn't, like, I, and I was so exhausted and full of adrenaline and scared and just don't know what's going on. And I like sat in the shallows, and then um, that's when the third shot came and that hit you. So, and I know there were three shots because of how, so I had a shot that went through here. Through your ear? Through the ear. Uh, they took that out at, in surgery, but it also one hit hit my facial nerve here. So I have no feeling here anymore. So uh, it was while you were sitting there after you had traded water on the bank that you got the third that's shot? That's the third shot, yeah. That is freaky. So the, uh, the, the back shot was mainly the back um, uh, and that the damage there, I didn't know at the time, but that, punctured my lung, punctured my heart. Um, then the shot to the face, yeah, that just damaged the nerve and I just had like shots stuck in my skull. I heard you couldn't speak as well. Yeah, so that was from the punctured, so I punctured lung and a punctured windpipe. So I couldn't, so that I couldn't speak, I couldn't like, uh, when I did try to speak, I was always like, <sighs> and I initially, so, kind of going everywhere, but I never knew what had happened. So I never knew what gun I'd been shot by. I just knew that I had holes in my back. I knew there was something wrong with my face because I couldn't feel it. Mm. I knew there was something wrong with my breathing because I couldn't uh, breathe and I couldn't make a sound. Like when I was trying to call for help after I got away from these guys, I couldn't build up mm. enough pressure 
and I can whistle loud and I can I couldn't do I couldn't I'd just be like yeah. <sighs> just for continuity purposes. So you were you were sitting on the the bank and the third shot hit you, right? Third shot hit me. What yeah. happened from there? How did you then get Then I realized I'd been shot. So that some I didn't know who had shot me, but I'd realized I'd been shot. Uh, and what it, it it feels like being hit with a cricket bat. You feel that force against your body. Um and I felt like I had holes all over me, like peppered with holes like the size of maybe like a five-rand coin. Um, but on that third shot, when I realized I'd been shot, I then was like, okay, this is it. Like, there's no ways you get out of this. And what had happened is because one of the shots had punctured the carotid artery, there was just so much blood in the water and that my blood had changed the color of dirty Amazon River water. So I knew I was bleeding out. I don't know where I was bleeding out from, but I knew that I was losing so much blood and you 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 feel like you're kind of drifting away out of consciousness. Um, I couldn't breathe properly. And at that point, I just figured that like, this is it. And I didn't know where these shooters were, but I thought they'd done enough damage and I then just gave up. I was just like, this is it. And then I remember uh, when I like internalized that, I just lay into the river and I'm just like, is it, you know, you're going to pass on, just take it easy. Uh, and I gave up. I just lay back there and I waited. And it's, so like from this whole experience, I became very fascinated with like the science of death. So often people go into like maybe a spiritual view of death, which is a very subjective way to view death. The reality is we all die. Yes, we die in different ways, but I became fascinated. And the first thing that fascinated me was, why did I give up so quickly? Like, why did I accept that I was going to die and then internalize, like just lie back and die before I was dead? Um, and the the theory that came out of that is like, you know, humans have, well, let's say all, all animals have a defense mechanism that we know of the fight or flight um, and I thought, why didn't I go through either fight or flight? Um, I kind of went to like just giving up. And I, I, I found out just that some mammals have what's called, uh, I think it's called thanatosis. It's to play dead. So like we all know that there are lots of, like I think a possum is the most, it plays dead. And that is actually its like defense mechanism. Because um, I thought I'd given up. Uh, and I was prepared to just waste away in the river, waiting to die. And I could have taken it days to die. And at that point, I was convinced, let I me mean, just rot. And initially coming out, I felt so like, do I not value my life that I'm just was prepared to just give up? Um, but, but then that's when I, I, I became interested and I found out, well, from what I view it as, it was more like a defense mechanism. So it's, it's fight, flight, give up. Those are all legitimate defense mechanisms when confronted with potential death. Uh, and I'd re reached that give up stage. And as I was lying there, uh, I think maybe blood loss, maybe the overwhelming reality of the situation, you go through a very, I went through a very euphoric, uh, period where I felt fuzzy and warm and very comfortable and very happy. Um, 
I suppose it's like a real good drug high, um, maybe like heroin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my vision was like slightly blurry and fuzzy. And I remember the time felt like it stopped, but it was still moving. There's a, you know, and like a, it's called the Ken Burns effect where you get a still image, but it feels like you're moving through the image. It mm. felt like that. That's what reality felt like. I could, I could imagine when you think you're going to die, you probably get that overwhelming sense of peace because I think for humans, we go through our whole life worrying about things, mm. worrying about where we're going to eat next, what we're, if I'm going to sleep tonight, if I can get this work done for something, a project next week or family, how am I going to support them? And then when you're going to die and you realize that you are, I think everything just goes away and it's stressless mm. because you know that you don't have anything else to do besides die. So, yeah, it's euphoric. If you think about mm. it, like death is, is natural. Like other species have a natural way of dealing with death. You know, if, a, if an animal's hunted, often it's the adrenaline. Like if, I don't know if you've ever seen like when wild dogs, they literally eat their prey alive and it looks so gory and crazy but because of the adrenaline that the animal expends to get away they actually don't go through the pain and the gore that we perceive and I kind of felt like death is the same. Mm. I think it depends. There are obviously like highly traumatic ways to die um, that I think could probably make that passing on period horrifying mm. but for me because I was alone and I thought that this was it. it. It felt very euphoric to the point where I was like borderline hallucinating. And I started to understand how depending on your process of death, you could feel that you are going to heaven or hell or you can create, you can experience that, halluc mm. that hallucination. Probably not real, but I, I felt that in that moment. What snapped you out of that though? Because there was a point where you said, I'm not going to just sit back and take this. I'm going to try and live. So what snapped, snapped me out of that, you know, that, that bliss was when the guys had shot me, one of the guys in the boats started coming around the corner and up towards me. And he was just literally coming towards me. He was, he was maybe about 100 meters closing in. But initially I heard the, the, like the two-stroke engine and then I was like, okay, there's someone around me now. And then I saw this guy. And then when, when I saw this guy, I realized that he was one of the two that had passed me. I realized that the guy uh, who was shooting me was now somewhere behind. And now this guy's coming to me. And he was, he was just like uh, dead emotion, just motoring slowly, like ominously towards me. And then I started, I was like, okay, you know, I started to beg to the guy, like, please leave me. And I like gestured, if you want my kayak, like, please just leave me alone. And he, you just carried on coming towards me. And then I figured out, well, this guy, like, yeah, he, he, there was no emotion. And he was just dead set on coming to me. He's probably got a machete. And at this point, I'm so weak. His plan is probably like... I'm this is not going to be a peaceful yeah, death if I stay here. Exactly. He's going to butcher me. Uh, he didn't have a gun. The other guy obviously had a gun. And then, then I figured out, okay, run. And... um just before I was decided to run, I wanted to flip over the kayak because there's a PLB, which is like a personal locator beacon. So if I trigger that, send an SOS, it sends a GPS um, emergency signal out. And then at least um, 
people know something's people wrong. People know something's happened. And I got to the kayak and I couldn't get the kayak. So I, I, I like bent down, tried, and as I tried to lift it up, the fourth shot went and that's why it hit me in the leg. But that, um, uh, I was just like, I don't even have time to flip the, kayak. flip the kayak, just get out of here. You don't know like how much longer until these guys are on top of you. And then I ran and I ran um, pumped full of adrenaline. But now obviously my leg, my quad had started seizing because of the shots that hit there. My breathing was terrible. Um, I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know where to go, what to do. I just thought, get away from these two guys. And again, the problem with the jungle is it's the Amazon jungle. There's not like a pathway that you can follow. So right, I just yeah. figured get into the jungle so you can hide, but you need to somehow use the river to navigate. So I like I would zigzag through just running nonstop and stay close to the river because I think that's the best way to find civilization or find people. The the problem is that it's these these guys also use the river to navigate. Mm. So going my my concern was more that I'd get lost. If you if you go ten meters into the jungle and you close your eyes and you spin around, you could not find the river again because you can't hear it, you can't see it. Um, so it was kind of, and I I knew that. The only way to navigate through the jungle is the river, uh, but the, everyone uses the river you to navigate. To close enough to yeah, it, but, but hidden, not too close. Yeah. Exactly. And do you think that's what saved you? Because I assume if you could see this guy, he wasn't that far away and you were very injured. So, yeah. I mean, if the jungle wasn't as dense as it is, you probably would have been found pretty quickly. So I, I think what was a, a blessing for me was that they were, I, th- I think they were distracted by what was in the kayak. Um, more so than chasing me. And I think I, from my perspective, when I say I ran and I didn't stop running for two or three kilometers, now two or three kilometers in the jungle is like 20 kilometers anywhere else. A lot more than that, I think. <laughs> I didn't stop. Yeah. So I think they would have just gotten over it eventually. Like, um, So it, it was a combination, I think, of them. Even if they did pursue me, I just didn't stop. And how did running feel? I mean, it must have felt agonizing. I ran, it was like running in a straitjacket. I couldn't I couldn't use my arms because they were still like partially paralyzed. So you're like running like that. And could uh, you feel bullets moving around in your body? So I, I did, it could, didn't feel that, but what you feel the numbness. So uh, uh, the, I mean, adrenaline, first of all, is, is incredible the things you can do with adrenaline coursing through your veins um, to the point where the pain wasn't there. So like even though my leg was sore, it was seizing from the shots. I just ran through that pain. The fact that I couldn't breathe and now nah, so, uh, if, if you think from like just a, a physical exertion, your lungs, your heart, blood flow, those all increase. And those were all, my heart was punctured, lung was punctured, um, carotid artery was punctured. So all of those things get worse and worse the more you run the, mm. and, and, and the more you exert yourself. Um, but I just pushed through it and I pushed through it and I got to a point where I eventually felt like I was away from these guys. I was down the river and I looked up, I couldn't see them. 
uh, I could, you know, I, I looked up like I couldn't see them behind bends of the river. So I felt like these guys are not coming down the river because there's no way they would be following me through the jungle. They would have gone back on the boat and tried to find me. Uh, and then when I, I kind of got to that point where I felt like I was away from them, when I uh, then gravity of the situation hit me, the adrenaline, it was now subsiding. I was starting to feel numb in my back. And you feel numb in the area of the shot. And because it was a shotgun, my whole back felt numb. It felt like I'd been shot like with the AK-47 like a hundred times. Because I, I just didn't understand why it felt like that. And it, the thing is you can get hit with the buckshot, which is you know not, not, not too big, like maybe just smaller than a marble. But then the area around it, feels numb and it feels like that's a hole. So I felt like I had these huge holes in my body. Um, but when I got to a point where I felt like I was away from these guys, I uh, became very hopeless because I was like, now what? Right? You know, getting away from them was like an objective. Okay, but now there's just no one on the river. I didn't see any boats. I didn't see any signs of civilization. And then again, I, I gave up and I remember just collapsing in the mud and then I tried to cry. Like I forced was crying and whimpering and feeling sorry for myself. And I was like, this is it, I'm going to die here. Uh, and then I think what kind of snapped me out that time was at, I felt that if I die, no one's ever going to know. Like it would be a death that your son is gone or your, your husband. And that's the worst kind of death is when you just don't know what happened. Exactly, because if you think for, there's never a closure, a sense of closure mm. for those who know you. And then they, like, they were, I just thought from their perspective is that they would forever be thinking at some point he's going to walk through the door and be alive and like, okay. And, you know, people can go through that for 10, 15, 20 years, just never coming to know that someone died. And I, I knew there was no ways in order to find my body there. No ways. I would have been... Eaten or decomposed before exactly. anything could exactly. be found, yeah. And just very few people come through there. Um, and even if they did find you, I was separated from all my equipment. There's no identification of who this guy is. Um, but fortunately, when I was there, I saw two people come from the opposite side of the river. They just like popped out of nowhere. And then I was like, okay, this is the ticket out. And I managed to get their attention. And I think, so for me, this, like getting shot, um, yeah, it's traumatic, but lots of people get shot, right? I'm sure uh, you, you've had, you met guys. I've met a lot shot. of guys that yeah. have been shot. Yeah. <laughs> getting shot, there's so many guns and bullets around. Hey, lots of people have got stories of getting shot. The thing is, most of the time people get shot. That's where the, the, the story ends because they then go to hospital yeah. and it's okay, right? For me... That's where it began. This is where it began. For me... Getting the, shot was the easy part. Exactly, right? Getting shot, getting away from these guys, going through that trauma, that was the easy part. The living or death part now became getting out of the jungle because I knew how isolated I was. I knew that I didn't have long to live because what had happened also is my neck started swelling up 
from the punctured carotid artery. So you would have just suffocated. Uh, I, so I, I, I remember eventually I started coughing and vomiting up blood. Then I, that's when I started to think I was going to drown in my own blood. But I just knew that the severity of the the wounds, I was going to, there was only a matter of time I had that I could endure this. Um, but this is, to me, this is where the story became interesting, was like uh, getting shot, fine. Interesting, sad, okay. But now what do you do? You're in the middle of the Amazon jungle. There is no hospitals. There is no communities that you know of. There's no civilization that you know of. You're alone potentially thousands of kilometers just from electricity. Uh, and now you, you've got this, this clock ticking that you're losing blood. There's no one here to help you. Even if I found, even if at that moment I was shot and I found a, one of the faster powered boats, it's still 12, 16, could have been 48 hours just to get to somewhere where I could maybe say that, you know, they might have like a, a, a hospital. Or not even a hospital, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like maybe just a doctor. Um, so who did you find? So, I, well, I found these two guys. I and mean, what happened is these two guys, initially they were apprehensive to help me. So they saw me, uh, they came across, but before they got to me, they stopped like 100 meters from me and they just stared at me. Because if you think how far in this is, these guys, they don't see white people. White at guy all. running through the bush with blood dripping yeah, everywhere. Yeah, and I because I had shots here and he has blood everywhere and I was full of mud. I, I looked like I, you know, I'd just come out of like World War One. They just stopped and they looked at me and they didn't want to help. It seemed like that. So they stopped, they looked at me, and then they turned around, I went back and disappeared into their side of the jungle. And at this point I was like, okay, I'm I know there's some, I'm going to swim across here. I wait, wait till I get a bit of movement, but I'm not going to die here. No ways. Um, fortunately, they then went and came back, but now they came back with like two other guys. So they obviously wanted to help, but they're a bit apprehensive. So they got, you know, more support. They came up, they picked me, I like flopped into their boat. And then by this time, when they took me across, that obviously let the other community know. And as I was getting across there, I started to see more people coming out of the jungle. Like you just see these bodies filtering out. And I remember there was this this lady with a kid on her back. And when she saw me, her and the kid just started screaming, like, like horror screaming. And then I was like, Jesus, this is bad. Uh, I'd never seen that reaction. It's like, it's like I was the monster. Mm. And then other kids were running away from me. and But eventually these guys helped me. I got into their village. And their village is very primitive. But um, there's no like uh, um, hospital or doctor or anything. But they had like shelters built out of wood. And when I got there, I was so weak. I'd kind of given up now. And I was like, okay, my fate is in these guys' hands. I hope they figure it out. Um, and what they did is they put me on a, like a, one of their beds. They wrapped me up in blankets and plastic and then they never communicated what was going to go on. But after about four hours in this village, they would like, I remember the one person was cleaning my back, like cleaning the wounds. And I, she, she was like, I took my shirt off. Well, the, 
they took my shirt off and they were dabbing. And then there were so many times it's just I was like, you know, the, why is there so many wounds on my back? Mm. That's what I thought. Because you didn't know you had been hit with a shotgun. No. And that's where I was like, okay, Jesus is bad. Um, and I eventually start fading in and out of consciousness. And that's because of the blood loss, the exhaustion. Um, when the adrenaline leaves your body. Yeah. And I didn't sleep much the night before because of those storms. Uh, and when I was sitting there, they kind of devised a plan, but they never told me. And I think they probably did try, but they don't, they speak their own dialect of Spanish. And my Spanish is okay when I was there, but they speak their own. You, 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 I couldn't tell what was going on. But when they had put me on the stretcher and put me in blankets and were like, seemed to be caring, I was like, okay, these guys are going to help. Uh, and about four hours after staying in that community, they then put me into one of their boats and was now going into the evening and they, we just headed off downriver. And I, I didn't know how far we were from a hospital or a bigger community, but I knew that these guys were now committed to helping. So uh, one of the guys had like taken... Um, sugar water and they're just feeding me sugar water the whole time. Uh, I remember one guy like chanting over me uh, as we started this journey through the night. And a few hours after leaving, um, it's now pitch black. They don't have like lights or anything. They just stop in the middle of the jungle and um, we pull up next to a bigger community and then we get to the bigger community, they start now, I start understanding that they need fuel, they can't get me to a hospital, and for it felt like hours they were deliberating, are they actually going to help me or not? And whilst I was there, I could feel, I could then I could feel like I was starting to drown in my own blood. And then, then I started throwing up all of the blood I had in my stomach. And when I was throwing it up, uh, it was like, some of it had coagulated and it was getting stuck in my throat and choking me. And then that was like probably the worst thing I'd gone through um, uh, up until that point. Just think, now I think I was going to choke on my own blood, but then also the amount that came, it was like buckets. I'd realized I'd lost so much blood uh, that I, I didn't think I'd last much longer. What happened from that experience is it kind of kicked these guys into a different gear. I think because it was so gory and the amount of blood, because I remember when I was vomiting and there was another guy scooping it out of his, the boat and dumping it. And I think it kind of said to them, okay, this is serious. They then put me in another boat and we just took off. And um, I was like, okay, they've probably seen enough. They know that this is serious. They're going to help me. Five or six hours later, they pull up on the side of the riverbank, pitch black. They pick me up in the stretcher. They walk me into the jungle and then they just put me down and leave me. They just all disappear. Uh, I, was, I was too weak to follow them, but I heard their voices disappear and then I was just alone. And I was like, your mind starts to race because why are they doing this? Why are they just dumping you in the jungle? And I started to think maybe... They were getting rid of me because they didn't want anything to do with me. I was a burden. They've taken me out of their community. Now they're just going to let me to rot here. Um, fortunately, that wasn't the case. And about an hour later, I heard more voices coming through. They picked me up. 
They did the same thing again, and then eventually we reached a small like clinic. Then from the clinic, we eventually reached a hospital. Like, so they were passing you from like village to village. Yeah, but I, I they didn't. Maybe they did communicate. I just didn't understand. But it felt like they were abandoning the language me. at all. No, no. It felt like they were abandoning me, and I, I, I kind of understood why. Like imagine at home, like a half dead person gets dropped on your doorstep in the middle of the night, let's say. You know, Certainly a lot of us would just yeah. ignore it. Yeah, you'd just be like, well, I, I think don't a lot of people do when you see a homeless person on the side of the road, a lot of the time, yeah. you know, they're very sick and ill and you walk past. I think in that instance as well, it's more extreme because they don't have any means really to, exactly. to get you places. It's like a big journey for them. Whereas yeah. for most people, it's like, Let's just put them in the car and go, yeah. No. And they still don't help. Exactly. So, so it was amazing that they did that. Exactly. That to me, that to me is like the most fascinating thing is what, despite the darkness of like unprovoked attack, ruthlessness that a lot of humans have, there is those pockets of, I don't know, compassion where, yeah, these guys probably use their last bits of fuel to help me. Um, and we think, why? They could have just dumped me. Like there's no, there's no repercussion if they help me or not other than just wanting to help another human. Uh, and that to me is what is like fascinating about this story is that these guys from nowhere, no way to relate to each other, no hope of something good coming out of it. You know, like I could understand... Yeah, some people might help. They thought you were going to give them if money, gonna give money or, or something. I had yeah. nothing. And I kept on saying I had nothing. Uh, I think there were times where maybe there were some opportunistic individuals who thought something could come out of this. But at the end of the day, nothing came out of it for their, for their There was nothing I could have helped them with. And then it's the logistics of having to take... It wasn't just one community helping me. It's It was five that had to understand the situation and somehow collectively say, okay, we'll help them for the next stage. And how long was that whole process of, it was, it was, from the time you found the first village to the time you got to the clinic? It was over 24 hours. I got there the next day when I got to a hospital in Pukalpa. And when I was reading about the story, I read that your mom was notified. So she was notified when I got to the hospital. And her, I think, I think she was trying to report on it. She was trying to get people... In, you were in, where were you, Peru? In, in Peru, in Pucalpa. So Pucalpa is like a, it's a bigger community. When I, I notified, so, so when I got to the hospital, the hospital couldn't help me. They want, they now wanted like identity and assurity. So they put me on a bed, they put, and then they just kind of moved me into the corner and they were waiting for, I don't know, some way that I could show that I have assurity to pay if they do help. Um, and again, I I understand why because it's like a tiny rundown hospital, like in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, obviously there's fees that go with looking after, especially in my condition. But for me, it was frustrating. It was like, do I need to be? How much more near death do I need to be? To you guys, just say, okay, we'll help him, and then figure it out thereafter. Later, yeah. yeah. 
But then I, that's when I actually asked the doctor for his phone and then I spoke to my mom. My mom went on Facebook and randomly my son's been shot in Peru. Can anyone help me? And um, that's when um, everyone just started networking. It's like if you think like social media is such a bad rap and I think it's probably because it's not used as a tool for what, good, it, for what it should be. Enough, yeah. yeah, But when you think what Facebook did, being able to network with each other, like instantly uh, reaching out to people all over the world. Because it starts from your mom and then yeah. she posts it to 300 friends. Yep. And then five of those 300 friends have friends in Peru and they share it and then they share it. It's like exactly. amazing how it just branches out it, like that. Exactly. Uh, it, 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 it's such a powerful tool powerful tool when used in the right yeah, yeah. in the right situation after that whilst I was sitting in there then um, these two individuals came in who work for SAB breweries um, and then they said okay we're gonna stand surety for you guys and unfortunately I have an uncle in the SAB and I think that's how the whole connection from the SAB guys came through is that my auntie heard obviously all Facebook tied. Then um, the SAB guys said, we're going to help him. Here is money, whatever. Then the doctors, okay, I can find we've got a surety. Take me in for an x-ray, pull me out, say, okay, we picked up shots in his vital organs. There's actually nothing we can do at this hospital. Now this is going into Sunday evening and they're saying, listen, it's critical, but we can't do anything. We probably need open heart surgery. So then they said, well, what, what do we do? Okay, we need to get him to hospital in Lima. Now, to get to Lima, you have to fly over the Peruvian Andes and no medical evacuation is prepared to do that. It's too dangerous. So then what they did is the SAB guys booked me on a, like a commercial domestic flight. Like, you know, you, we have like Mango and Safir. They booked a whole row of seats and then they put me on a stretcher. On those seats. On the seats and then tied me in with rope because I, I couldn't sit, I couldn't move. The doctors didn't clean me up, and there, there I went on a just like a domestic flight with ordinary passengers. That's crazy. Yeah, it was very surreal. Um, I was like in and out the whole time, but I remember like I can't imagine what up. everyone else thought. Yeah, like imagine you're going on for a them. flight and there's just someone dying next to you. Exactly, uh, that's what it was like, and the so and were you they moaning put me on a the lot headrest? Because I mean, when, yeah, yeah. when I get sick, like. I make it known that I'm sick. So, so the, the, also the problem is they strapped me in the stretcher back and I was putting so much pressure on my back where all the shots were. Mm -hmm. So I was always trying to move and groan and then I was spitting blood all over the plane. What? How did they allow that to happen? So the, I think the only reason why is because of SAB. Uh, it's a huge multinational business and I think they have a lot of clout um, because when I got to hospital also in, in Lima, there were other SAB guys there to meet me. And then those guys, I was now priority. Um, when I was met in SAB, I was met like by SAB security. Um, and they, 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 took they had you now to the next kind hospital. of taken me under their wing and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to, you, you're going to live, you're going to get through this. I, th I think the most heartbreaking thing for me, and it's just because I have so much empathy for my mother because of things I've put her through. Yeah. And it's like, I know when I do dangerous things that's, whole time she's just sitting at home thinking 
is he okay? Is he okay? Yeah. And I've always been okay. But in this situation, I'm sure when… I mean, you're gone for months. Yeah. You At that point, I think you said a month and a half or something. Yeah. And your mom's sitting at home the whole time worrying like, is my son okay? Is my son okay? And then to get that call that you're dying. Yeah. Must have been so heartbreaking. And I can't imagine the stress and this, the pain she was in at that time. It's, uh, yeah. It's, uh, you could see a, it in her plea for help yeah. as well in, in the it's, writing. It's pure desperation and, Anything and vulnerability. Back, yeah. Just, but the, I, think, I think what you have to also remember is, yes, dangerous situations, but like the difference between maybe you and I is you're doing stupid things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drug fields, but stupid. But also, also like the stuff I do with gang members. And yeah, that kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's like stupid crazy. Yeah. Where I was going for this to me was an adventure. I wanted to have an impact on uh, promoting veganism and environmentalism. Like to me, this was a career path where there were risks, but it was uh, it was for something that I felt was far more impactful than just doing stupid, risky, crazy things. Mm. Um, and I, I would like to think that with that rationalization, it, it, I wasn't like purposefully going into these situations to give my loved ones heart attacks. Like I, I had a, I had a, a, you had a plan, a, a purpose, and a plan yeah. that I, I'd um, created. But that being said, now I've got children and I'm, you I don't know never, if it's because yeah. of this, but I'm super paranoid with them. Like, I mean, would you ever let your kid do something like this? So it's, uh, so uh, I've been, I've posed a question. <laughs> yeah, I go with them and uh, and if, if they're like, if, if, you know, if Noah or Hunter's like, no, I don't want you to come. I want to do it on my, because I was like that. For me, I have to do it alone. Mm. Um, I would hire like secret uh, bodyguards to be in the shadows, but I yeah I, probably because I know what it's like. It's not as dangerous and bad and scary as it seems from the outside. But that being said, there's always a risk. When there is the risk, the problem is like with this. Getting shot wasn't the problem. It was getting out. Mm, the isolation. That is the risk. Is the isolation? Mm. Is and that bad things can happen anywhere? The problem in these isolated parts of the world is that when something bad happens, um, it's very hard to get it's help. It's very hard to get help, very hard to get out. Um, and that to me, all my luck is like uh, based on me being able to get out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is where I'm paranoid now. So um, like after all of this that's happened, I always try to reflect like, you know, what... A lot of the time people go through near-death experiences. They have like renewed outlooks on life. I haven't. I always felt like I was doing what I wanted to do. I didn't need death to give me a wake-up call. I was highly motivated and I had big objectives before I went through this. Um, And all it kind of did is reinforced what um, I was doing and what I stood for kind of made me more self-confident mm. where there's the perspective of a problem is different. But what has happened over time and especially with kids is I've become very paranoid about crime and security. And I, But I don't know if that's because of that or if it's because we grew up 
in South Africa. Yeah. Um, it's probably a bit of both. Probably a bit of both. But I become like very paranoid um, to the point where uh, like I don't sleep some nights. Um, that to me is like the biggest thing that's come out of this. But then I always rational that that paranoia, for me it's like get prepared. You know, learn mm. how to fight, learn how to defend yourself, learn you know, how to just be observant. Um, but besides the, the, um, that experience in the, the Amazon, it kind of like got me more focused. It got me more dedicated to what I was doing. And then I just started to also become a bit more calculating. Like, do you have to risk your life to get a message across? Yeah. And I felt like I did because I felt like the message was... Um, as important. People don't really listen unless, yeah. and I think I, I heard you say this in your TED talk, was that you needed some sort of credibility for people to yeah. pay attention to what you were saying. Yeah. Because anyone can just say something, but not everyone can go through and experience these kind of, um, these things that you have experienced and go on these expeditions. Um, and I think we all know that people can yell about something all they yeah. want, but unless you're willing to back up and really put your kind of thoughts into action, yeah. uh, people don't generally listen to you. No. And it takes something extreme to get a simple message across. So, But the irony in this is that now well, people were wanted to listen to me, but they want to listen to this part, yeah. right? <laughs> not the reason I went there, not mm. the reason I did these adventures. And then I, I also got to the point where I realized that, so adventure, uh, my desire for adventure was because I love the natural world and it's just disappearing. And I thought that adventure is the only way to see parts of it before it's all gone. Um, but it's such a niche, uh, unrelatable way to convey a message because if you, you know, you know we're talking about crossing continents, disappearing for sometimes years. Um, it's not relatable to people. So yes, it's fascinating, but it's fascinating to a small subset of the population. Mm. But if it's not relatable, the message is not relatable. And uh, because I was always pushing veganism, always pushing environmentalism, pushing um, the uh, equality and ethics between humans and other species, it, I just found that adventure was, it was giving me the platform, it was giving me the audience, but then often the audience didn't want to hear it. So like I'd been booked for corporate talks before. and They only wanted to hear that yeah, part. They'd be like, okay, you know, thanks we for really coming. like your story, but you know, just don't tell people about the environmental aspects, the mass extinction. No, they I actually hear say that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah, crazy yeah. thing to say. But I, I get why though, because it's, it's depressing and most of the time you're brought into, you know, you want to give people this, up. Yeah, you yeah. want to be like, and I survived after yeah. all of this, and, but the earth is going to die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I heard something crazy that apparently there's, this also seems like an unrelatable figure, but apparently 150 species go extinct every single day. I don't even know how that's possible. Well, so I, I think it's like it, it ebbs and flows and I think it's very hard to put a number, but... 
we're currently going through a period known as the sixth mass extinction where it's the first, so there's been previous mass extinctions, but this is the first extinction driven by another species. And you've got a project called the sixth mass extinction. So that, yeah, that, sixth extinction. So yeah, it was the sixth extinction. So after the Amazon, I was then going to go paddle. I, did, I, I, I figured, okay, you've got to keep the momentum. Um, what's the next big thing? So the next big thing I'd planned was to pedal a boat across the ocean from Cape Town to Rio, so, oh, in Rio and Brazil. So I, I set out on building this um, pedal boat. Um, so it took four years, partly. I also took this path. So these adventures are expensive. Um, and a lot of guys who you've, you, you probably know that are successful in the adventure, they have... Extremely well-funded. Exactly. From um, sponsors. Sponsors, and... right. But I hated that I now have to s tell a sponsor's message. So I kind of always did it independently and I talked about my own brand or my own ideals and and probably no sponsors wanted to be hitched their ride to my vehicle either because it, was, it wasn't the traditional, I don't know, adventure type... Uh, pursuit. So I had funded the whole thing myself. Um, it took four years to build the boat. And then what happened is that I arrived at the next thing is that crossing an ocean on a pedal boat, it would take about six months. It's a long, hard slog. It's Didn't you plan risky. on doing it with your mother? So I... <laughs> when, I, I was, when I initially conceived of it... She was like, I'm not letting you go alone this time. <laughs> so she volunteered... But um, I agreed to have on board because I knew that it added more cachet to the story. So like what's happened as in, within time is that there's very few unique adventures left in the world. Someone's done it. Um, and then once it's done, you know, if you think like Mount Everest, it's incredible. But because it's done so much... No one's really interested unless there's like an avalanche or people die or mm. a celebrity does it. It's still incredibly difficult. Difficult. Like you can't take that away from it. But because it's now become a bit more commercialized, no one... It's not so impressive it's anymore. not impressive anymore. You can't get media attention. And I, for me, I needed to get attention to then talk about the reason why I was doing it. And then the point of difference became my mom is that people have rode the oceans, but now it's a guy and his 50-year-old mother mother doing it. Oh, okay, this is interesting. You know, how, you know, how are you going to survive with your mother? And, you know, how is a 55-year-old woman going to cross an ocean with no experience? And, and we got a lot of coverage on that, I would say, just because of the dynamic of mom and son. Mm. Um, and then that's why I agreed. But when I was going through it, I was training. My mom was not, you know, she was like, I'll deal with it when we're there. <laughs> I'm like, you need to train. You need to come and like just get your mm. sea legs in. And then she would come like once in the blue moon. And So it was pretty stupid of me to agree for it to come because I'm pretty Very much unprepared. day one she was a liability. Uh, and then that's why we had to get rescued because she got so seasick, literally day one, within 48 hours, 
she had torn a stomach lining, so she was passing up blood from throwing up. And oh, no. the, the storms were just getting worse. And I was okay. Um, but then we had to get rescued. And then as we uh, got back, I then had to now relook at leaving again. And now I was saying, okay, I'm going to do it myself. But then about a week after I got back, I found out my wife was pregnant. And then that changed everything where mm. I was like, I can't... Keep risking I, I can't do this anymore. Mm. I, and I, I wanted to build it as a career path um, because I, I, that adventurous part of me hasn't disappeared. I still I find out different ways to like satisfy Pull it. it yeah. But I figured I'd have to, I'm going to have to get a real job. So <laughs> then um, I did two quick adventures called, I just called them Project 1000, where just do a thousand kilometers, 30 days, run across the country, cycle across the country. So I did Project 1000 across South Africa, Project 1000 across Botswana. Botswana. And then that, I realized that was it for adventure. This you, you can't be even going away months, you know, that's it. Mm. This is a chapter that's closed uh, at least till the kids are older. Uh, so I figured that's it. Did the two project one thousand? Um, you're gonna get a real job. So my wife and I had started uh, a brand called Herbivore, which was making plant-based products, and that was kind of rooted because I, I mean I've been vegan now twelve years, and there was just no food. And then, fortunately, we managed to build that business up and supply um, uh, different retailers, and then. Early on this year, Tiger Brands took equity, Setcher Capital took equity. So it's become... Quite big. It's become, well, in terms of food and plant-based, yeah, it's become um, relatively significant in South Africa where it's now full-term occupancy. And it's been the best the best thing for me. Um, obviously, the success of a good business is... is um, nice you know it's nice to be making money and feel independent and mm. have choices and to be able to build a business in a like a section where you're getting people to question their dietary habits um without having to bash them over the head with information that to me was like my life was leading towards this you can just provide something exactly and no more talking people will choose it well, if, if you think about, especially mm. like with dietary, like I, uh, in terms of the ethics, like you, the, there, uh, ethics, environmentalism, health, I've never met someone that has a, a good enough answer to justify why we eat animals, mm. never. And I've spoken to a lot of people. I've spoken to nutritionists. I've spoken to environmentalists. Um, the ethics, you cannot deny it. Yeah. Um, uh, so I got to a point where I was so good at speaking to people um, and debating them and them always looking like an idiot because they were just eventually ha wouldn't have a good enough answer. And I'd worked so hard to become knowledgeable, but I just got nowhere because it would end up in confrontation. Uh, family stopped speaking to me or I stopped speaking to them. But when, even when people know they don't have a good answer, they will always fight. Yeah. Even if they know they're wrong, there's like so many different ways we've seen that play out. Um, but 
often people just don't want to make the change. They don't. No. It's not about whether they're right or wrong. It's just well, most I of the like, time yeah. they're wrong, but they still don't want to make. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you go into like cognitive dissonance where there's that internal conflict, and then it gets pushed onto me. And I, I then in terms of the business, it was like, well. Now I don't need to talk about this. I can give you an option. And if you think about what is the best way to get someone to even open up a dietary change, was not through words and information. It's by giving them a good product. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, why wasn't I doing this sooner? Why didn't I take all of that energy and emphasis that I had that would make me go into the jungle and risk my life, uh, try piddling ocean knowing that I may never come back why didn't I take this all and put it in where a product does the communication? And I know I sound like a capitalist here, but I, I actually watched this this video the other day, and it was a this guy saying like, in terms of global warming, he was saying, and I, I don't know if he was right, but he was saying basically, we're fucked. Yeah, we are. We're beyond fucked because yeah. there is a huge portion of the world that will never change, right? Yeah. Somewhere like India, somewhere like China. Um, like China wants to be the biggest e economic powerhouse mm. in the world. And a lot of the time, places like that will choose the wrong way of doing things to get to the top, right? Yeah. Um, and there's so much of the world that's in poverty that it's just not important to them yeah. because they are worried about providing for their family. Um, the way he was saying is the right way to go, he thinks, is to innovate and to give better kind of solutions to those problems. Make it cheaper and easier to do the right thing. So uh, He might have said it slightly differently, no, but that's I, kind of what I it's, remember. It's, it's a term called techno-optimism, is that innovation will fix every problem and it doesn't. No. Um, but it's, it's, it, again, it's, it all blends into hope. Hope is probably the worst aspect of humans, but also real positive. Um, but we sit with hope that things will change. And the reality is that, uh, yeah, we're beyond gone. I mean, if you just think most of the wildlife is gone. That that to me was like the, the, the craziest thing with when I did the Africa cycle is I was like, okay, I'm cycling across the whole continent of Africa, right, doing 10,000 kilometers. Uh, through that whole experience, I saw elephants twice. Like, and there were, it was because there's tiny little national parks that mm. we rode across the border. Otherwise, it's all just agriculture and civilization. And that to me was, that's, that's what then is like, okay, where, where are the last Raised wild places? Yeah. Maybe the Amazon. That's why I wanted to do the, mm. the adventure there. And even as the Amazon, I saw hardly any wildlife because it's been um, fished out yeah. or decimated. Um, and it's like, I think it, what, what, what you're kind of alluding to is that the the first world, the big economies, they they don't care um, as much as they say they do. They they kind of just do it as greenwashing mm. because it, it's another way to push a new consumer cycle. Like if you think it's the craziest notion in the world to think that you can change the world by buying something. And even though I make products that we claim mm. that, but not really, it's... Impossible. You don't fix the world through consumerism. Um, but what happens is the real danger, like let's say in the Amazon, it's being um, 
destroyed for farming. oil, you know, mainly farming. But you'll never see that. And you, and if even if you go to the Amazon as a tourist, you'll only see the pockets that are protected and you don't know what the last hundred years were like there. So mm. there was a, a portion of the jungle that I was in and initially my naivety is like, what are people talking about? You know, this jungle is amazing. It's full of uh, life and um, trees. And then I met guys from an organization. They said, you know, all this jungle you're looking at is less than 100 years old. All of the mahogany that was here is cut down. And I'm like, how can you cut down? It's, I mean, it's kilometers. And then you realize that the trees were supposed to be like 40 meters into the air. Much only, bigger, yeah. only five meters into the air. But I, f from everyone's perspective, if you don't know mm. that, you're like, oh, but this is new forest, right? Yeah. New forest is, is you need thousands of years of forest to grow, to create a sustainable a, a, a habitat sustainable for habit, animals. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just sad. It's like it's all mm. going. Um, and if you think, like I, uh, I think about it daily, you know, there used to be like rhinos and elephants all over the Cape. Yeah. We, you can't even find them in the Cape now. No. We build our own sections and kind of push them to the yeah, sides yeah. of those sections and then kill them off on the sides. And Exactly. Um, I, I think just to kind of wrap up, because the cameras will shut off at a, pretty soon, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask you just one of the things you said before was about growing up. You, It was something I read on, online was that you didn't really have a mentor or people to look up to. Um, I don't know if you remember saying that. So, uh, yeah, I, I would maybe rephrase it as that. So I, th I think it, it was, the question was, what's the greatest fear you've had to overcome to get where you are today? It's, and then it said, you said being able to walk a different path with no mentors, no role models yeah. or no examples to show the way, to not fear the unknown. Um, what, what advice would you give to a kid that's, felt like that as well and is maybe looking for someone to look up to and chooses the wrong people to follow. So in my view, following anyone is wrong, right? Because if, first of all, you, you only look at the surface. Most of the time you look at a, you form a mentor. What happens is that they, they unconsciously become your blueprint and then you end up on a path that is either similar to theirs or you go the opposite where you reject it completely and you just end up uh, on a different path. But the, the problem is that they become your beacon, whether they're leading you somewhere or not. And I, I don't like that. I, do not, I, I, I don't like hierarchy in humans. I don't think that there should be a human better or worse, even though there are some shitty humans out there. Mm. You really should just kind of follow your own path. And from my, our experience... Um, especially like with in business, you, I can't tell you how many of the people closest to us told us we were pursuing a stupid thing. I mean, who's going to want to eat just plants, you know? Um, and if I'd listened to them, we would have been in big trouble. Now the irony is like, oh no, we always supported you. That yeah, that's mm. because it's now a success. But it only be for uh, from our perspective. It was a success because we pushed, we pushed what uh, we felt was conventional. We pursued our own uh, ways of learning, everything. We never had a business mentor. 
I've never had a personal mentor. I did for a period get like caught up in these like self-help gurus, which is a, the biggest load of crock. And it's that that to me is what put me off this idea of a mentor is where yeah. it, beca- it, it becomes so influential consciously and unconsciously that you end up in a cult without even knowing it. And for me, I always say now, like, just reject, reject everything, start there, reject everything, and then try to figure out who you are, where you are, and where you're going. And just to end off, can you just tell us, I think you have a book, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I do. I, I saw you walk in with a book. Yeah, I brought you a copy. So would you mind just telling people where they can find it, what it's called, and also where they can find your products? So my book's called Choosing to Live. Um, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, That's kind of ironic. Kindle, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that at all. Yeah. So it's on it's on Amazon. And then um, uh, our business is called Herbivore, uh, herbivore.co.za. And there that's just plant-based products. And th- to me, that's obviously where my passion and interest and time and effort and everything goes into that. And I think that for me, the 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 lingering message is always to question everything and question to the point where you think, once you think you've formed a good foundation, question that again and carry on going as deep as you can. It's, it's frustrating, it's tiring and don't find people to give you the answers. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming down and sharing your story. Yeah, um, thank you. It was yeah amazing to hear it. I've heard bits of it online, but to really hear you flesh it out and kind of... Um, break everything down and yeah I mean it's incredibly it's inspiring I usually talk a lot more than I do people get sick of me talking but I was just really uh, kind of immersed in the story so thank you yeah thank you thanks for having me and again uh, it's just nice to be able to share it and mm. your great interview where you don't interrupt I like that <laughs> amazing well I'm sure they enjoyed it as well so thank you for watching the Wide Awake podcast and I'll see you all very soon cheers <laughs>